Welcome, fellow traveler. You are now listening to the Tent Theology Podcast. Each week, we have a tent talk where we pursue the renewing of the Christian social and political imagination. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Tent Theology. Stephen here. And today, I'm going to answer some listener questions that have come in over the last few weeks. We've been following the series which we've called Followers of the Way, and that series has now come to an end. At least season one has come to an end. And I have another 10 or so episodes that I want to do, and we're going to call it season two. And this just seems to be a good midway to address some of the questions that have arisen in the last few weeks. Now, some of these questions... Uh, probably are just going to be answered during the course of my recordings for the next season. So I might uh, reserve the right (laughs) to just say, uh, keep listening, keep listening. And some of these questions there is no answer to as well, okay? Some of these things, there simply is no answer to some of these questions. So I will address what I can of them, and I hope that you will bear with me if I don't quite answer them to your full expectation. You should know that I do have these questions often in the back of my mind, so even if I don't reply to you directly, or even if I don't refer to it directly in the podcast, quite often I'm actually having your questions in the back of my mind when I interview my subjects, for example, or when I bring guests on. Quite often I'm having some of these questions floating in the background, and I want to see how my guests can respond to some of these things. So do keep sending in your questions. Info at tenttheology.com is probably the best way to do it, but there's other ways to reach me as well. And while I have you here, this seems to be a good time to do a little bit of uh, housekeeping or a state of the union on where we're going with this podcast. I need to find ways to make it sustainable. I love doing it, and Sean and Chris, my co-host, they also love doing it. So we want to make this something that we can keep putting out and keep making available to as many people as possible. So one thing we're doing is making uh, our release schedule to be just on Tuesdays, and we're going to alternate between interviews and teaching material, just going forward with that, as well as some of these Q&A episodes, for example. We've also started a Patreon page because it does cost money and quite a lot of time to make these episodes. So a patron account makes it sustainable for us. So if you go to patreon.com forward slash tent theology, you'll see there's different levels that you can give at. For as little as $5 or £5 a month, it really helps us keep this thing going. And Regardless of what level you give at on the Patreon account, patrons will get access to extra material, more interviews, and uh, the Bible study at the beginning of the world, which was a Bible study series that I started during lockdown as a way to stay in touch with my subject and also with some of my students and some of my listeners. And I started with the Gospel of Mark, and we just went through it chapter by chapter, line by line. And then we started going through the Acts of the Apostles. So I've decided to make that material available as well to patreon.com subscribers. So do check that out if you're interested in some of the foundational texts for the establishment of the social 
and political imagination for followers of Jesus. All right, Q&A time. Let's have a look. Gideon B. writes, I've heard lots of conservative preachers say that the gospel is offensive. I don't think this is the case. Usually the people I hear that from are looking for a fight and are deliberately confrontational in the name of Christian apologetics. Do you think there's any truth to the phrase, the gospel is offensive? Okay, Gideon, I would refer you to the Right Honorable Soren Kierkegaard. And Kierkegaard here talks about this because in some ways, yes, Christianity or or, or the way of Jesus is always offensive, he says. It's always countercultural. So whatever the culture is, Christians will be counter to it. And so he sees, in some ways, you're always doing a minority pursuit when you're following Jesus. He saw that Jesus was pulling people out of their common environments and their large groups, and he was pulling them into a smaller group. And then that smaller group was being set at odds with the way of the larger group. And that, in some ways, is inevitable. And this is where offense arises. Uh, But Kierkegaard is very alert to the fact that just being offensive in itself is not indication that you are a follower of Jesus. So you get a lot of Christians, don't you, who say, oh, look look how much people hate us. We're always being attacked So we must be doing something right. We must. Jesus said, you're going to be persecuted because of me, because of my name. And so when Christians today find that they're on the receiving end of uh, media mockery or offensive language, or people will write books talking about how ridiculous Christianity is, Christians will say, look, we've caused offense, so we must be doing something right. Well, Kierkegaard and others will say, it might be just because you're a jerk. The offensiveness of the gospel is not an offensiveness that deliberately picks fights. It doesn't seek out the things that are most sacred to a group and then intentionally attack those things or mock them which is what a lot of Christians today do, right? I mean, they will kind of deliberately go out looking for a fight, as you say, Gideon. The offensiveness of Jesus and his followers was that they took care of foreigners, that they were hospitable, that they treated children with honor. They were offensive because they didn't care that much about upwardly social mobile climbing. They were offensive because Jews and Gentiles ate together in one house. Basically, I'm not even exaggerating here. Like One of the main reasons Christians were so offensive in the early church was simply because they were trying to do communion really well. They weren't trying to pick fights with Rome or with the Jews. They were just trying to do communion. And they would have Jews and Gentiles and slaves and masters and men and women and children and old people. And they'd all be in one room together, serving bread and wine to each other in memory of Jesus. And this was causing offense everywhere they went. Because it was breaking all sorts of social rules and common sense morality of what men and women, Jews and Gentiles, old and young, slaves and masters should be doing. They should be staying in their lanes And the early church 
has just reinvented the whole swimming pool. They're not staying in their lanes at all. And this was offensive to people. And Kierkegaard and others point out, you know, look, look where the offense came from. Jesus wasn't choosing to be offensive. People chose to be offended. And that's the big difference. The early Christians aren't choosing to be offensive. They are doing what they do, and other people get to choose. The aim of the gospel is not to be offensive. The aim of the gospel is to bring people to freedom and to life in all its fullness. That's the aim. And a lot of modern Christians today, they think that their aim is to be offensive. Because that seems to be some indication that they're working. But in the New Testament, the aim is life in all its fullness. But that's only going to be possible if people have a genuine ability to choose the opposite. So for Kierkegaard, he says, faith, remember faith means following Jesus, right? Faith is not in evidence if you haven't made a choice to be offended by Jesus or not. It's only if the presence of the potential, he says the potential for offense is the evidence that faith is present. Because it's only people who see Jesus and his way and then look at Jesus and say, no, I don't want that way. This isn't what I want to do. Then they are said to have offense. But Jesus and his way is not intending offense. It's just intending, come follow me. And if you don't want to follow him, now you're said to not have faith in him. Okay? So unless the way of Jesus is clearly present in people's lives, unless people have been offered the way of Jesus, we cannot be said to say that they have had an opportunity for faith or not. Because if they are born into a world in which they think faith in Jesus means ascribing to a set of checklists about right-wing political morality or conservative fundamentalist doctrine or progressive liberal social justice, if they think that following Jesus means checking off those lists on some sort of cosmic checklist, a list of beliefs or doctrines or dogmas, well, then they're not actually having faith in Jesus at all. They've never been offered the opportunity to be potentially offended by this person. They've only been offered an opportunity to be a member of a group. And being a member of a certain group is not the same as being a follower of the way of Jesus. The group comes later. But a lot of Christians today mistake following the way of Jesus with being a member of our group or our gang. And, uh, and then they feel that when people are offended at their gang, that they're being offended at Jesus. When actually, it is highly likely that some of these groups do not exhibit the way of Jesus at all. So when people are offended at them, they're not offended at Jesus because Jesus isn't present. <laughs> the way of Jesus has not been manifest in their lives. So let's talk a little bit about what the New Testament does imagine is offensive about the gospel or potentially offensive about the gospel. And here we get people who are actually trying to manifest the way of Jesus in their lives. And the way of Jesus is not about 
apologetics and clever arguments and humiliating your opponents. It's not about building walls or barriers or doctrinal safe zones. It's about giving your power away. It's about laying down your life, withdrawing your will to make space for other people, uh, choosing not to win at arguments, even when you could, choosing not to be a victor in violent conflict, even when you could, choosing not to clutch tightly to what is rightfully yours, even when it's rightfully yours. All these things are indications of the way that Jesus used his power and led his people or led his movement. And the early Christians were looking at that and they said, this isn't an indication of a man without power. This is an indication of how he held his power, what he did with it. This is an indication of what God looks like. And uh, you can say no to God, (laughs) right? The possibility of offense is baked into the incarnation. The whole point of the incarnation is that God says, this is what I look like. And by the way, you can say no to me. You can beat me up. You can kill me. And I won't kill you back. So there is a a sense of like that, uh, that ability to be offended by Jesus is essential to the personhood of Jesus. It's essential to the incarnation because God does not reveal God's self as a shining force of a hurricane or a volcano or an overpowering blinding light. Even the blinding light on the road to Damascus, Saul had the option. Jesus asked Saul questions. Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Saul even had options then. So at no point does Jesus overpower his enemies in a way that they have no option. There's always a choice. And that's the kind of thing that they look at when they say that the gospel is offensive because it approaches people who already claim to have everything sorted in their lives. The ones who are breathing violence, the ones who are so sure of their righteous purity, the ones who are so sure of their rights or their ability to control and dominate the world. So think of Pilate, think of the Romans, think of, the, of Saul on the road. Think of the Jewish Pharisees. Think of the high priests. Think of the, the mob, the crowds that are calling for Jesus initially as a Braveheart type national folk hero. They're claiming him. And then later on, they're the ones who are calling for his crucifixion. This is the, the righteousness and certainty of the mob. All these different groups are presented with a person who does not avail himself of the sorts of power that they think they need to run the world. And that is where the offense comes in. It's a simple alternative that Jesus offers to the way of the world. And the way of the world can choose to choose his way. They can choose to follow Jesus at any point, but they do not. And that's where the offense comes in. The gospel is offensive. It does catalyze or spark offense wherever it goes. Wherever people accept the way of Jesus, they will be drawn out of whatever group they had their prior allegiance to. And those prior groups then have a choice. They can choose to be accepting and joyful 
that they have now met their right ruler, or they can choose to dig their heels in, build their walls higher, and clutch more tightly to their power that they think is rightfully theirs. And that's what we call offense when we meet it in the New Testament. Betsy W. writes, I've really struggled with reconciling what Jesus actually said and the perspectives of my family members who are on paper much better, quotes, Christians than me. And uh, Betsy here is, is writing from America, and she writes that the tent theology has helped her to, to unravel the lockhold that the right-wing imagination has had on Christianity. My final question is, where do we go from here, she says. Relationships with family have honestly been strained under Trump. I avoid the topic at all costs, but I still find family members bringing it up and throwing jabs whenever they can in a provocative way. I hesitate to engage because their hearts are hardened and they don't seem to hear no matter what I say. Arguments aren't rational anymore. It's very difficult to enter into these types of conversations while protecting my own sanity and mental health. So where do we go from here? Keep loving them and praying for them. Wait on them to ask questions from a place of humility. Without humility, there can be no truth. All right, Betsy, lots to talk about here. Uh, you should know that I actually ha I got this email from you a while ago, and I've had it in the back of my mind. Even when I was interviewing Brad Jerzak, I actually had your email in my mind when I was talking to him. So I do recommend that you listen to the Brad Jerzak interview. And I have some other ones coming up. This is a common question, actually. The one of how do we engage with people who, not just people on Facebook, people we actually know. We're not just talking about reading something in the newspaper that we don't like or seeing something on social media. We're talking about actual family members. And one thing I noticed, Betsy, a couple things. You, you mentioned that you are actually being attacked. You talk about it as being, they are needling you, they are provoking you. And the other thing you, you say, arguments aren't rational anymore. So I guess I would first of all say it never was rational. We are talking about love of nation. We are talking about worship. We're talking about the affections. We're talking about allegiance. We're talking about deep primal, deeply human, deeply primitive instincts that have to do with safety, existence, fear, panic, survival mode. Um, and this is why nationalist politics are always so phenomenally successful. This was why I have to say when I saw um, during the primaries well before Donald Trump was, was actually nominated by the Republican Party, when I saw the whole list, do you remember that one time there were sort of 24 candidates or something, 16 or something, who were, who were vying to become nominated to be the president or the presidential candidate? And right away I saw Donald Trump using that kind of belligerent jingoism, the patriotic, nationalist, America first kind of rhetoric. I saw him using that even when he was a joke, even when everybody thought he was the joke candidate, I saw him using that language and I thought, that's the guy. He's going to win. And the reason I knew he was going to win was because he is able to tap into that feeling. 
that it's hard to describe what it is, that nationalist, patriotic, tribal feeling that is part, partly pride and partly fear. Pride in what we've done and pride in the, the mythic story that we tell ourselves about ourselves and also fear of being uh, ethnically tainted, fear of being overcome, fear of losing your power and your privilege. And I frankly, I just saw he understands patriotism, or at least he can use the language, he's going to win. And, uh, and he did. And I wasn't surprised at all. And none of those things are rational. So rational argument has nothing to do with, with where we're at right now. And this is always a problem. Whenever really rational politicians try and engage, they can't win, and they don't, because they're not capturing the hearts uh, of people. They're not, they're not tapping into those emotions. So, you know, just from a point of view of, of looking at our situation in all its light, clear, dead in the eyes, look at it dead in the eyes and realize we're not talking about reason here. And we rarely are when it comes to politics. Uh, all, human beings are not actually very rational creatures. We're, <laughs> we're creatures of the appetite. We're creatures of our instincts. We're creatures of our fears and our loves. And then we rationalize these things after the fact, most of the time. That's not to say there's no such thing as reason and ration uh, in, when it comes to thinking about politics, because clearly there is. And some humans discipline themselves and try and live that way. But they rarely are successful when it comes to popularity. And uh, something being true and something being reasonable is not at all the same as something being accepted or popular. And uh, so in one way, I have to say, Betsy, get used to it. Um, because the logical, you often find this, like, it really is so easy. Like, logically, it is watertight <laughs> when you have people who claim that they love Jesus and then you look at the things that those people really love and if it involves you know if they celebrate the killing of their enemies if they celebrate the erection of large barriers if they mock and belittle their ideological opponents if they love money and they also say they love Jesus on paper, that is the most obvious, water tight, waterproof example of illogical position that there is, because there's absolutely nothing about any of those positions that Jesus upholds. And in fact, he explicitly tells his followers not to do any of those things. And yet, a lot of the people that call themselves Christians today love those things and base their whole political worldview on those things. And so there is no reason here. There is no reason at all. There is cognitive dissonance. There is people saying one thing or living with things they call their foundational texts or their foundational principles and then embracing and living out the exact opposite. And Jesus even predicted this. It's even in the Gospels where he tells the story, the parable. He says, who do you think is the better son? The father comes to one son and says, I want you to do this for me. And the son says, oh, I'll do it. And he, in enthusiasm, he, he says he'll do it. And then the father goes to another son 
And he says, I want you to do this job for me. And the son grumbles and says, I don't want to do that. But then when he's left to himself, he goes and does it anyway. And Jesus asks, who do you think is the better son? So there's cognitive dissonance, even in the story of Jesus's parables, that you can say one thing and not do it, or you can not say something and still do it. And the one who does, but even without the speech, is the one who is considered to be the follower. And it's exactly similar to this parable of the sheep and the goats that Jesus tells at the end of Matthew. Whereas he shows up in the, you know this story, the goats say, you know, at the end of time, right, the, the, the wheat and the chaff are going to be separated. And uh, Jesus says to the goats, uh, the goats say, we worshipped you, we, uh, we, we got sentimental in your name, we, we, we shouted in unison in worship, worship songs, we did miracles, we did all these things. And Jesus says, well, I, didn't, I don't know who you are. And then he goes to the sheep and they say, and he says, you, you're, you're my people. And he, they said, well, when did we ever see you? And he says, well, you gave me a cup of cold water. You came to visit me when I was in prison. You took care of the poor. And it's just right there that your ability to talk the talk about Jesus and how much you love him basically means nothing if you're not going to do any of that work which frankly has a socio-political edge to it, right? Caring for the poor, visiting prisoners, giving cups of cold water to people in need. This is a socio-political imagination we're having here. And Jesus very explicitly says, this is how I know that you're my followers. And James, the book of James talks about this as well. And we're not talking about salvation by works here. We're talking about people who say they follow Jesus. So the following of Jesus, I mean, Jesus is going to save you no matter what you do. It's up to him. It's not up to me or my words or my works. I'm not claiming salvation through works. What I am saying is, if you claim to have faith in Jesus, if you claim to be following his way, show me your works and I'll show you your faith. Okay? Now, this, so we're not talking about, I, I, uh, I visit prisoners because it will help me get to heaven when I die. That's not what we're saying. What we're saying is, because I claim to be a follower of Jesus, this is what people like me are supposed to do, so I'm going to do it. Which is where I find it useful to make this distinction between Christian and follower of Jesus. And look, I know this is problematic. Of course it is. Of course it is. The whole thing is a problem. From beginning to end, we're not going to solve the problem. But the fact that you had to use Christian in air quotes in your email to me is an indication of the problem, that we are surrounded by people who call themselves Christian, and rightfully so. This is not a debate here about well, who is an authentic Christian or not, because that is not a question that can be answered, because there, that word now covers so many different people, and it, it spans ideological differences that are diametrically opposed to each other. Somebody can call themselves a Christian. You're allowed to self-identify as a Christian, and there's nothing anyone can do to tell you different, right? And what you mean by Christian is what it is. And I, in a way, I'm just going to give up that fight. I can't fight that fight anymore. We've invented this thing called Christian, which now covers pretty much every position under the sun, you can find Christian atheists 
there's a there's a Facebook group for Christian sorcerers. You can find Christians who enthusiastically endorse killing of enemies. You can find Christians who enthusiastically endorse veganism and extreme uh, care for all living creatures who will never kill a single thing. You will find Christian climate change deniers. You will find Christian climate scientists. You will find Christians under every heading that you care to find. Calling yourself a Christian gives almost no indication now of what you think about any of these things that are important to life. So I don't think appealing to a common Christianity is going to help with your family or your friend. This is why the designation followers of the way of Jesus I'm finding to be slightly more useful. It doesn't answer all the problems. It doesn't answer all the questions, but it's slightly more useful because there's more of a verb to it than a noun, because you're a follower and you're a follower of the way, which means that there comes with it a little indication of what that might look like. And so the way of Jesus is the way of non-violence, non-lethal violence, not grasping at power, considering others better. It's not rocket science. It's hard to do, but it's not hard to understand. And so uh, there is a sense there of just let yourself lose these arguments, Betsy. You're going to lose them anyway. And when your enemy strikes you with their words, when they provoke you and throw jabs at you, as you say in your own email, what does it mean to turn the other cheek? And if you remember that turning the other cheek for Jesus does not mean become a cringing doormat. It does not mean a punching bag. It means do not clutch tightly to what is rightfully yours, even when it's rightfully yours. The person who was struck on the cheek is fully within their rights to hit back. An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, a life for a life. The trajectory of this revenge cycle is the trajectory towards the elimination of your enemy's life. And Jesus knows this. And he says to his people, when you are attacked, do not embrace the cycle of revenge, which will lead to the death of your enemies. Even though it is rightfully yours, even though it is yours by birthright, even though not a law in the land will hold against you. Very similar to the same teaching when it comes to soldiers who force you to carry their load. Jesus says, go with that soldier, let carry his pack an extra mile. There's not a court in the land that would have refused you for dropping that soldier's backpack because soldiers were not allowed to force people to carry their loads more than one mile. And Jesus says, do it anyway. Don't clutch tightly to your rights. And I wonder whether there's something here for your family or your situation with your family is that you, let's just say you are right. Let's just pretend that everything you say is absolutely 100% correct. Let's pretend that everything your family says is 100% wrong. Now what are you going to do? And Jesus says, even when you're in the right, don't fight for it. Don't destroy your enemy. So I wonder whether you choosing to let them win the argument 
choosing to let yourself be humiliated in public. It's not easy, but it is the way of Jesus. I remember the story of the woman in Mark, the woman who's a Greek, Syrio-Phoenician woman, and she comes to Jesus and says, can you heal my daughter? And Jesus um, says, oh, don't you know, we shouldn't throw crumbs to dogs. And he calls this woman a dog. And it's a famous story, and people sort of wonder what's going on here. But the story is actually about racism. So Jesus, he, re- he uses a line. It was well known to call Syrio-Phoenician women or Gentiles dogs, right? So Jesus adopts a line, which is well known to everybody. In fact, it's common sense. He's, he's supposed, teachers of the law like Jesus are, in a way, supposed to call Gentiles dogs. So this woman comes to Jesus and he says, Oh, don't you know, I'm supposed to treat you like a dog? And she says, yes, but even the dogs get to eat crumbs from the table. And Jesus looks at her, and in the Gospel of Mark, he says, for such a clever answer, your daughter is healed. And the thing about that Gospel in Mark is that is the only time in all the Gospels when somebody is commended for their intelligence. Jesus lets this woman publicly beat him in an argument. An argument, by the way, about racism. And this isn't a story of Jesus learning how not to be a racist. Jesus has already demonstrated quite extensively in the Gospel of Mark that he is not a racist. (laughs) But what this story is doing is it is demonstrating Jesus's willingness to be publicly humiliated by a woman who everyone considered to be less than human. And he lets her beat him in an argument. He accepts the humiliation, and then he says, for such a clever answer, your daughter is healed. And here's yet another example of Jesus not clutching tightly to what is rightfully his, even though everybody thinks that it's his by right. There's so many more of these stories uh, in the Gospels, but I wonder whether something like that might lead towards you being at peace with your family, because it's not about reason, It's not about argument. You're not going to win the argument, even if you win the argument. Do you know what I mean? By clutching tightly to what you've got, you're just going to increase uh, the, the cycle of violence and revenge. So it's not easy, Betsy, but I, I, I hear you. And I, and I wonder whether something like this might be what we have to do going forward, being willing to, Sometimes when I get involved in a, if somebody gives a snarky Facebook uh, comment, I don't even do Facebook much anymore because it just sort of bugs me too much. But somebody will leave a, a snarky Facebook comment and it'll be some sort of Trump supporter or something. And in my mind, I'm like, all right, friend, today you get the gift of having the final word. I'm not going to play that game. I think you're 100% wrong. I think I'm 100% right. But I don't, I'm not going to, I'm not going to try and win because today you get to win. And you know what? Who cares, right? Does it really matter? Is it really going to hurt a, a human being if somebody gets to win the argument? And in return, you preserve your mental health, which is the next thing you said. You need to protect your own sanity and mental health. Betsy, you do need to protect your own sanity and mental health. If you're on an airline and the, uh, the, there was turbulence and the gas masks come down, 
you put your gas mask on yourself first and then you do one for your child, right? That's what they tell you. Take care of your own mental health because you're at your best as a follower of Jesus when you yourself have not been swept along in the insanity and idiocy of nationalism and partisan idolatry because there is no good there. There is no good there. And we know it. So don't participate in it because by doing so, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth and nobody can see and nobody can taste and everybody dies. So get yourself out of that situation however you can. And only then will you be able to live to fight another day. But of course, you're going to fight the way Jesus fights, which is with humility. And you say, should I wait on them to ask questions from a place of humility? Well, yeah, I guess. They might not ever ask you. Which goes back to my earlier thing with Gideon, talking about um, apologetics and being offensive. It's like, your offensiveness as a follower of Jesus is not in your ability to make fun of Trump and the Republicans. Your offensiveness as a follower of the way of Jesus is that you don't care about the things that other people care about. That you don't defend yourself when everybody around you thinks that defending yourself is the most important thing you can do. Your offensiveness as a follower of Jesus is that you don't think your individual personal freedoms are the best thing that the universe has ever seen and that you need to protect them at all costs. The world, uh, certainly the conservative American world, is expecting you to defend your freedoms and to celebrate your freedoms and to protect your culture and to fight the liberals and to... It's expecting you to act in a certain way. And you can cause offense to that culture, not by attacking that culture, but simply by treating it with benign indifference, by not singing off the hymn sheet they gave you. And that will be offensive to them, or it will be potentially offensive without you having to engage Uncle Bob in a knockdown, drag out fight over the Thanksgiving dinner table. And imagine you got hit by a bus tomorrow, Betsy, and you show up in whatever it is heaven is, and the spiritual plane, and you meet Jesus. And Jesus looks at you and he says, how many people did you convince in an argument using clever logic and reason that being a Republican nationalist isn't a good idea for followers of Jesus? Do you think he's really going to ask you that? Or do you think he might ask you, were you kind? Were you patient? Did you love mercy? Did you practice self-control? Did you offer the gospel to people with an open hand and freely let them see what goodness might look like if they chose it? The mark of living a saved life, of living in salvation, is not how many people you could convince to say Jesus is Lord. It's whether you say Jesus is Lord. The mark of salvation is not whether you've done a good job defending a certain group or civilization or getting lots of people to join your group. 
it's whether you lived according to the recreated life, the way of the Lord, the way of kindness, justice, mercy, peace, thankfulness, self-control, all these things that you see in the fruits of the Spirit, in the Sermon on the Mount, which are being presented to us in the New Testament, not as impossible ethics or an offensive attack on the way of the world, but rather as a presentation of what the world actually is, what it actually is when it's been recreated, what it actually looks like for humans to work and live in the best way that humans can work and live. And so all we're doing is we are patterning ourselves after Jesus, who was God and man, who is showing us what it is to live a recreated life. In fact, this is also where the talk on Philippians and kenosis comes in quite well. Because we often talk about boundary setting, don't we? And I know that Brad Jerzak talks about this when, when I've asked him about how he resolves conflicts or deals with people who are in conflict with him. Because if you think of kenosis or that Jesus withdraws his will to make space for other wills, this is the act of self-emptying, which is the refusal to self-fill. And if you think about conflict, is often the desire to win at all costs. So either by actually killing a human being or by defeating them in an argument or by mocking them or by silencing your, your foes, maybe even Uncle Bob at the Thanksgiving dinner table, by silencing everyone, you have now filled the room with your will. Your ego has flowed to fill the space because you want to remove any voices in opposition to your own. But the Jesus way, which he says is the recreated way, the way of creation, the way creation should have been and can be once again and is around him and his people, is the way in which people practice self-control. They don't let their egos flow to fill the space. They deliberately put a boundary on their will and they make space for other people's wills. And why this isn't being a cringing worm and subservient is that I think you're allowed to look at Uncle Bob at the Thanksgiving table. You're allowed to look at your family that are needling you, and you are allowed to say, my way, what I want out of life, is to walk humbly with my God. I want to live at peace with everyone. I want to treat others better than myself. I want to live without dominating others or killing my enemies. I'm trying to live according to the way of Jesus. This is all I need to do. And then you can stop. And then let them come to you. You don't have to force everyone to agree with you. You just have to say what it is that you value. And then you can stop talking. It's not an argument. It's a statement. A statement of boundaries. Say, this is my boundary. Now what do you want to do about it? Um... And I know that's not easy. <laughs> I'm not pretending that's an easy way of living. But it's a way of living within conflict, which is not also trying to destroy your opponent. And it's a way that you get to say, well, this is, this is me. This is, this is what I value. Do you want to agree with me or not? Right? And so this is partly what Brad Jerzak talks about when he says sometimes you do often have to 
actually set the boundaries. You have to state clearly what it is you stand for and what you're, why you think you exist on this world. But that's not the same as being entered into a long drawn out argument. The person who's takes a slap on the cheek, as it were, and stands their ground with, while at the same time refusing to get involved in the fight is not someone who has lost their sense of self or their sense of meaning. It's someone who says, this is my ground. Here I am. What are you going to do about it? In a weird way, this is empowering, right? You have empowered the people around you. You've given back to them their ability to choose now. Because you're saying, I'm not going to get stuck in this eternal cycle of debate and argument and backbiting and fighting. I'm going to stop it. Now, what are you going to do? By withdrawing your will and setting a limit on your will, you are in fact making space for other people now to exercise their will. And they get to choose whether to accept the way of Jesus gladly or to be offended by it. Which brings us neatly back to the first question. The gospel is offensive only if people choose to be offended. The gospel is not offensive because it chooses to be offensive. I'm going to stop here for now, but we will continue our Q&A session in a following episode. To further support the show, please subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow us on social media and learn more about Tenth Theology at www.tenththeology.com. Thank you for joining us and God bless everyone.